Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Web Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're gradually succumbing to the seductive demonic forces of a brand new era as we welcome aboard a new writer who's definitely better than the old writer, but brings lots of complicated feelings along with him. Excalibur number 83 was originally published in November 1994, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Warren Ellis on writing, Terry Dodson on pencils, W.C. Karani on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, John Babcock on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Welcome back to Excalit Chat. We're back on our weekly nonsense after the holiday break and excited for this new era, which won't really probably start for a few more issues, but we've got plenty to talk about in the meantime and some pretty good art this week. Excited to talk about that mm-hmm. better than we've had for a while. Uh, but who are we? I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm possessed by the need to talk about sexy gendery stuff in comics and pop culture and academia and around the internet and at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I should, I believe, still be discussing Silver Age comics at the time this episode drops. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, <laughs> I am policing Kitty Pride's imagine thoughts about her supposed best friend just like don't compare your best friend to a rug i mean just like pretty basic rule of friendship but you know whatever um i am joined as always by mav what forces possess you i just want to point out that that rug really ties the room together so in that case actually fine (laughs) like (laughs) shout out to all big lebowski fans um (laughs) hi my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav and i am on the last four days of my vacation so um i'm trying to live it up and you know watch some tv uh work on you know this and my other podcast and really totally i swear i'm done with my syllabi uh i'm not panicking at all (laughs) (laughs) really i am not (laughs) like i'm I'm definitely not but uh you know i'm teaching professor of uh digital narrative interactive design and pop culture at university of pittsburgh host of this show another show called box popcast uh like studying pop culture and stuff and i'm you know we're gonna talk soul steel today soul steel you know how everybody (laughs) has always been a fan of soul steel it's like a thing that goes back that we've that we've always always talked about it's a thing that 
everybody knows about and is well established. Uh huh. That's what I'm. Go- that's what I'm here for. Don't forget the soul steel brooch. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Soul steel. <laughs> All kinds of things you can make from soul steel. I got soul steel rims on my on my car. That's, that's my- <laughs> that sound good. That does sound good. Yeah, I, I definitely. I'm I'm in the throes of course planning and stuff. I mean, I did a lot of stuff previously but like this is my first day that i was like okay i'm gonna be back at work today after like spending a week like rotting my brain with lucifer fan fiction which i needed (laughs) i needed a break but like i'm like oh god it's so hard to work today (laughs) but i'm I'm getting to podcast now so that's making it better anyway um andrew uh please remind us of your magics uh my only magic remains that i can lower my respiratory rate to below that of a hibernating bear <laughs> um, which is true and I mean, pointless. Really? <laughs> yes. Long story. Uh, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I am the co-project lead for Sequential Scholars, and I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. I am also tied for the biggest fan of Oyana Rasputin on this panel, and I'm kind of excited to talk with Mav and everyone else about how that rich mythology surrounding that character is here being mined, arguably for the first time, um, without magic present. I think that's going to be kind of a cool subject. Also, my course prep is going decent. I would say decent. Mine's going decent. I just don't remember how to write a lecture. It's been a while. I'm like, oh, man. And I got to do some live <laughs> stuff and some recorded stuff. And it's so different doing the two. And I'm just I'm just grumpy. <laughs> It'll work itself out. Um, anyway, I am not grumpy to talk to today's guest. We are joined by a really wonderful guest who knows lots about comics and horror and Edgar Allan Poe and Star Wars and loads of other things. The pod is extremely excited to welcome Dr. John Edward Martin. Welcome, John. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is, this is uh, already a lot of fun. I'm not preparing any uh, course syllabi anymore, but I do have to work with all of the grumpy professors who are working on their syllabi and are going to be making all kinds of uh, last minute requests this week and next week. So I'm preparing for that. But as of today, I haven't started work yet. So this is still my vacation. You all are part of my my Christmas break. So, so are you offering, like, that. Are, are you offering help? <laughs> you know, like, is that what's going on? Uh-huh. <laughs> I think I've already got a pile of emails waiting for me. Oh, yeah, see, I hate that. You take time off and then the emails are still there. You know, that's the worst mm-hmm. part. Yep. Anyway, God, sorry we're to be all grumpy today. I will give you a wonderful introduction, John, then we'll get into some fun <laughs> conversations about comics. So Dr. John Edward Martin is a scholarly communication librarian at the University of North Texas and a former English professor with a special love for American literature, gothic and horror fiction and film, and of course, comics and other associated geekery. He organizes the comic studies at UNT outreach initiative through the library, serves as the book review editor of the Edgar Allan Poe Review, and is a board member of the Digital Cultural Studies Cooperative, which, among other things, has organized three Star Wars-themed scholarly conferences called Realizing Resistance Episodes 1, 2, and 3. I believe past guest, she's been on a couple of times, Sam Langsdale, has been involved with that as well. So, John, you are new blood here, and we need to do your comics origin story, as we like to do. So (laughs) tell us about it. Have you been a life long reader of comics? Did you discover them later in life? What is your origin story? Yeah, well, I mean, the answer to that is actually both. You know, I was I was an early passionate reader of comics from probably about the age of nine or 10 up until about 18 or 19, which falls exactly within the 1980s. So 
it kind of covers uh, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, that's right around the time that my own mutant power should have been manifesting, but sadly, <laughs> you know, failed to do so. But, you know, comics did provide me with a lot of, you know, very formative influences on my, my reading taste, my vocabulary, my cultural literacy, my emotional development, all of those sorts of things. And then I, you know, moved away from comics for probably much of the next two decades or so while I was trying to become a, you know, quote, serious academic and professional and felt compelled to turn my attention to other kinds of, of literature. But ironically, or maybe not so much uh, in retrospect, it was <laughs> leaving my first academic career as a professor and moving into librarianship that kind of brought me back to comics, both because they were becoming increasingly relevant in academic libraries and in classrooms and in scholarship, but also because I had a lot more leeway as a librarian to just pursue things that I loved and was interested in. And there's a, there's a huge geek culture within the library world that just, you know, can't be contained. Um, and it gave me, you know, some freedom to pursue, you know, uh, things like comics and science fiction and movies and other things that were, you know, had always been part of my my personal interests, but just hadn't been able to, you know, blend them with my professional life. So I've come back to them. The comics I'm reading now are a little different from the ones that I kind of grew up with. I read a lot more like horror, science fiction, crime noir kinds of things and less on the superhero end. But I still have a, a love for the for the old superhero stuff and uh, a lot of connections to kind of the stuff that we're reading now, because this is this series is shortly after I stopped really collecting and reading. So it's slightly removed from what I remember, but not too far removed. Yeah. And I mean, we do have Ellis coming on as the writer and, you know, is associated with certain contexts of, of yeah, I mean, he did a lot of mainstream work, but has also done some indie stuff as well. Obviously, he's written a ton of things. And again, we've said this many times on the podcast, we are going to talk about the real world stuff surrounding Warren Ellis. We are going to do an episode where we talk about that extensively in a few episodes, and we're not really going to touch on it here today unless people really strongly want to, but I promise we are going to talk about that. But I did want to ask you, John, a little bit more about your affection for X-Men comics in particular. Like, I know you go back with, with X-Men. I'm pretty sure it was one of those comic series that drew you in when you were younger. So tell me a little bit about that. What is it that drew you to that world? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, my first comic love was, was Spider-Man. And so I, I was a Spider-Man fan for a long time before I started reading anything else, but eventually found my way to the Fantastic Four and Daredevil and then ultimately X-Men. And interestingly, I came to the X-Men at almost exactly the same time as Kitty Pride. Oh. We were both uh, about 14 years old at about the same time in the early 1980s. So needless to say, she may have been my first comics crush, but also one of the first characters along with Peter Parker that I really identified with. And that's going to play a part in my reactions to this issue later, okay. but I'll save some of that until we get to it. It was definitely a character that I could immediately kind of identify with. And, you know, the X-Men in general, just being who they were. This was, the, you know, the beginning of the Chris Claremont era. So, you know, the, the depiction of the X-Men as these outsiders, as marginalized people, as, as people who sort of regarded themselves as outsiders and freaks and having to deal with all of the, the prejudice and discrimination. Those are all things that were familiar enough to me in my own world that I immediately latched onto that. So, yeah, I think and that's I imagine that's common to a lot of X-Men fans. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, can I ask you, <laughs> I think you have some affection for uh, Mr. Kurt Wagner. You, I sold you a BAMP shirt, which you are wearing on the podcast. I'm which... wearing it now. <laughs> <laughs> but can I ask you about that a little bit? Like, what kind of drew you to that character? Sure. Well, you know, Kitty may have been my first crush, but my very first scene of any X-Men comic that I, that I read featured Nightcrawler, I think... I've posted about it before. It was Uncanny X-Men number 147, like from 1981. Uh, it was a story called Rogue Storm. Mm -hmm. 
and the yes. splash page of that issue shows Kurt, you know, materializing several miles in the air in the middle of a howling storm. And when, as a kid, I opened up that comic and I saw that splash page and I just remember thinking, what the hell is that? <laughs> is that a demon, a vampire, a goblin, you know, being the, the budding goth geek that I already was at that point. I was totally hooked on just the sight of, of Kurt. But um, of course, like most fans, I eventually came to, to love the, the gentleness and the depth of his character and how he comes, he embodies pretty much everything that the X-Men stand for, right? The outsiderness, the acceptance, the courage, having a moral center, being kind of a swashbuckling and an adventurer, a romantic, you know, he was kind of all those things. And so I felt like Kurt was really, Kurt and Kitty were the first you know, X-Men that I really, you know, latched onto. So it's interesting that they are at the center of this story as well and of, of this team. So yeah, I've, I've always loved Nightcrawler and, you know, followed him for as long as I was still following superhero comics. And then when I came back, uh, you know, when he first appeared on screen in the, the X-Men movies, I just, you know, just about lost it. It was so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> the opening scene is good. We can all agree. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a whole, the movies were not great. But yeah, just seeing him for the first time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Seeing the powers kind of manifest in live action. I wanted you to mention that splash page because I know I talked with you about it before because I did an essay about that. You were like, oh, that was my first memory of the character. And I really had that in my head as I was as I was writing that piece. Such a yeah, such sure. a wonderful splash page. Um, okay, I want to get into some of your insights about this particular issue. So let's do our uh, issue summary and we will we will get into all of those things. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never compare you to a rug or a special effects beastie unless we meant it in a sexy way. But even then. The room <laughs> brought together. It really brings the room together. I do want someone to do me a cartoon now of like a Nightcrawler skin rug. Like. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You made it weird. I made it so weird. Just for comedy value, not for sexy value. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, it's been a long day. Okay, because we're such good, good friends, though, <laughs> we shall give you a plot summary at no extra charge. Excalibur number 82 opens with Bishop delivering medical supplies to Muir Island. Meanwhile, Kitty sits on a hill having an outsider day and wondering if her life will ever be normal again. Definitely not, and who would want that when you've got Kurt Wagner teleporting in to tell you a soldier from the future has brought you new clothes picked out by a cool-ass mutant teenager who used to live in a mall and paid for by an angel-winged billionaire. Come on, Kitty. Great life. Elsewhere in Cairo, Amanda's Sefton wanders the streets as a tourist, watched closely by the tourist police. She walks past a beggar and the woman greets her as a daughter. Oh snap, it's Margali Spardos. Margali tells Amanda she's been on the winding way and their meeting is not a coincidence. She warns Amanda about a sorcerer called Grave Moss who wants to use the soul sword to advance on the way. Back on Muir Island, Megan is having another convulsive attack. Moira gives her a sedative as Brian holds her down. But Excalibur's resident shape-shifting elemental isn't the only one acting strangely. Kitty goes to try on the supposedly conservative clothes Jubilee purchased using Warren Worthington III's charge card and makes them, gasp, less conservative. For Kitty, a bare midriff is a lot, so we know something's up, and if that wasn't enough of a giveaway, she's got a magical phallic sword protruding from her gut. Meanwhile, in London, a woman named Shrill recovers from a recent spell. Shrill has a bunch of stuff going on, including a soul steel eye and a soul steel brooch, and when the soul sword is drawn, it causes her a lot of pain. But lucky for her, she can use the soul steel brooch to track the sword, determined to make sure no one can draw it again. From there, we head back to Kitty cruising around Muir 
Treasure Island with her new clothes and new attitude. She breaks a vase and steals a leather jacket from Moira's dead husband and puts a cigarette out on Moira's arm. Moira slaps her, Kitty punches back, and this escalating violence reveals the soul sword. But that's not all. On his way to teleport in to help, Kurt's accosted in the brimstone dimension by Grave Moss, who pours himself into the fuzzy elf's body, and we will be picking up that plot point in the next issue. So John, first impressions of this one. What particularly stood out to you that you're particularly eager to discuss, if anything? Yeah, um, you know, I was thinking about this in the context of, you know, horror stuff and and demonic stuff and things like that. And I was recently talking to some friends about what constitutes a scary movie or book. Oh, yeah. The answer to that is different for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, When you first mentioned that we'd be talking about demons and possession, I immediately envisioned like, all of the supernatural demonic possession movies that I've seen, which I love, but also all those demonic Marvel characters that I'm familiar with, like Velasco and Mephisto and Nightmare and all these others. But we don't see any of that in this issue. And that's okay, because I don't really necessarily find demons or the supernatural particularly scary in themselves. But one thing that I always return to when I have this conversation is that one of the things that actually does scare me is something we see in this issue, which is that when someone that you know or love begins to act in ways that you don't recognize or that seem to violate your basic understanding of who they are, this is actually one of the aspects of of what Freud calls the uncanny, like the X-Men. That's strangeness and familiarity in the same in the same person or the same object and I already told you my history with Kitty Pride so seeing her <laughs> sort of turn in this issue into this cruel heartless seemingly homicidal character was was kind of unnerving in a way that I don't think uh, an actual demon would be or at least not a visible one mm-hmm. so the issue ended up being a little scarier in that sense than I was expecting and it's also uh, I, you may have talked about this in the past but it's a repetition or an echo of what happened to Kitty in the magic limited series years ago before yeah. this series where she met an alternate version of Nightcrawler in Limbo who's been corrupted by Belasco and actually tries to molest her a much younger version of her and it was I mean the horror of that moment for Kitty and for fans of Nightcrawler it always stuck with me so I was having a little bit of a flashback in this issue where we see you know Kitty herself becoming a an alternate version of herself in a way that's really disturbing and of course Nightcrawler is going to stumble into this so yeah, it was it was a really interesting way to kind of connect those two things and also evoke this this kind of subtle horror that's not all that visible, but I think equally kind of scary if it's if it's someone that you actually care about, or in this case, a character that we care about. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I want to talk about the different atmospheres of this comic and the way Dodson's art works with that as well. Like Dodson has such a sort of round, smooth style, and I feel like that almost heightened the menace here because it wasn't just going all out horror. It was like had that domestic feel and the transformation from that domestic space to something uncanny, I think worked really well how he rendered it. So I was sort of appreciating that aspect of it too. Um, how, about, how about you, Andrew and Mav? Let me grab some first impressions from you and then we'll get back to some of these questions about atmosphere. How are, how are you feeling about this one, Andrew? Very good, actually. I, I mean, you look at sort of the the different aspects by which this comic is an improvement over what we've been sort of mired in. Yeah, uh, in the I last know. Few. We've got mm-hmm. a really good scripter. Uh, again, Ellis is problematic, but he can write prose that is next level in comics, and that's something he's okay. famous for. The art is quite good. Uh, the cover art is spectacular. Uh, yeah. Even the paper is is high quality paper for the first time. Excalibur, right? Not the pulp. Uh, this is a this is a big upswing for me. I, I mean, the story content isn't always there. There's a lot of like cliches and stuff like that. But this is where I'm starting to feel excited moving into um, the Ellis run. 
Yeah, and yeah, a great Senkevich cover with the hot pink background and Kitty and the mm-hmm. Soul Sword. <laughs> Recalls New Mutants, of course, with the presence of the Soul Sword and not Ileana herself being present, but still remnants of her. Uh, Mav, how are you feeling about this one? Nothing is bad when Bill Senkevich does a cover. Yes. Period. <laughs> without, with, 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 without exception, like, if that's the only thing that happens today, it's a good day. <laughs> and a frontispiece, too. Yeah, I like this story it's not necessarily i I made jokes about it in the intro about soul steel you know this is like a a weird retcon that doesn't take and you know whatever that said given the last time we tried to do a soul sword story in this book this is one million times better it it, it is so much I, i remember reading it back then and going well that's not quite right but i don't care because i am intrigued and it is interesting and i know we don't want to talk about ellis yet i i need to at least address for all the problems that he's had we didn't know that back then yeah like we didn't know any any of this so i'm so i can only read this in that present as with the information that was uh allowed to me and i have a whole big thing on the you know on the concept of milkshake ducks so so to speak and you know canceling somebody and this is just well written like it's yeah. not even, and it's not his best work. It's not Ellis's best work, but it was part one of the Soul Sword trilogy. So reading it, I felt like even though this was a part one, even though I don't necessarily know who Shrill is, this read like, oh, someone has a plan here. This is a story <laughs> where this is a story that someone has thought out. You know, I'm getting the beginnings of a story, and someone seems to have an idea of where the middle and the end will be. You know, it doesn't quite match up with everything. Uh, I don't know why Bishop is here. He's horribly out of character. Like, was anybody yeah. screaming for a bishop? Yeah, was, was anybody weird. screaming for a bishop cameo? <laughs> like. It, it, I mean, he's he's not in cameo in character of where he was in the X Men at the time of where he'll ever be in the future. He's Bishop's not a robot. Why does he not understand? I thought like, that was human, so it, weird. Like yeah, like joke. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> like it, it is a weird characterization, which made me think that somebody said, "Hey, you know, put an X Men cameo in there." And Ellis was like, "I don't know, Bishop," and he just didn't bother to read anything about him. Like 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 it just it, that's the weak point of it. And there's some other there's some we'll talk about some you know some weird. Kind continuity things but like i am intrigued by margley i am intrigued by amanda i am intrigued by the soul sword of it all i'm even intrigued by why is why is kitty out of character oh my god she's cut her shirt you know know, like I'm, i'm intrigued so i was interested for the first time in what had been like two years in in this book so that <laughs> so i'm i'm happy I'm, I'm happy with where we're going and i think there are some interesting things to talk about yeah i really <laughs> again i just it's so different <laughs> like the writing is like characters do things for symbolic reasons rather than just telling you what they're doing explicitly mm-hmm. which is what we've been having for like a year of comics and more at this point i just really appreciated how competent the writing was on this comic and we really can't overstate that i mean we've been here every week podcasting about this comic and it's a dramatic change <laughs> it really really is i do have one example of where i think the writing is really strong just like a simple small thing uh the line sometimes he looks awfully like a dead boy filled with wires yes to me Mm -hmm. that one line captures the essence of doug lock's pathos better than the entire doug lock chronicles that's what a good good script can do that was a good line that one stood out to me too i'm so glad that you highlighted it and i and i hope you enjoy it because we're not mentioning it again for the next three issues (laughs) <laughs> well, we'll get back to it. <laughs> it was a 
good line, though. Well, it sounds like I hopped in at a good moment. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> you did. You did. We've been stuck in a limbo for a while and not the actual not demonic the limbo. Just not a, the just fun a, limbo. No, not the dance <laughs> or the dimension. <laughs> but anyway, um, I wanted to get back to some of these atmospheric questions, as I said. But do you want to talk about the context of magic and the soul sword and stuff first? Because I know. Andrew and Mav, you're both going to have a lot of thoughts about that. I don't know how many thoughts about that you're going to have, John, but you're welcome to contribute as well. But how did the two of you as big magic fans feel about some of the retconning going on with the soul sword here? Do you have strong feelings about it? I personally did. Like, I'm, I'm always trying to do as Mav teaches, which is, you know, let the continuity go and appreciate the story for what the author is trying to tell us. And that's hard for me here, but I think I'm okay with it because I still really like this comic. But one of the things I really liked about Claremont's cultivation of what, what is essentially Wicca, like it's just, it, it's Wicca. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, straight up. Building with. <laughs> he doesn't characterize it in the sort of um, public scare, demonism, satanic panic that I think a lot of writers really fall into. It's actually a quite benevolent force that gets misconstrued a lot. And I find that Ellis's version is a little closer to Claremont's than some previous writers such as Labdell uh, have accomplished, but not as far to that side as I would personally like to see, particularly as a commentary on a religion that actually exists. You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. the demonization is still there more than I would like, but the story's working for me, so I'm I'm letting it go. Yeah, I was wondering if you would have thoughts about the characterization of Ileana's relationship to the soul sword, because it's just said very bluntly, like, she had a sword that drove her mad. And I was like, is that the story? Yeah. No, no, it's not. not really my understanding <laughs> no. of the story, <laughs> no, but... Not, not even remotely. Not even remotely. Yeah. It's not, yeah, that's it's, not... It's Ellis that doing his continuity thing that, that Matt yeah. has talked about before. He, he just, yeah. he doesn't do the homework sometimes. I think he did and didn't like it. Like, I think he, <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and I disagree with him on this. Uh, again, I like Ellis as a writer. I disagree with the choice because I adore magic, basically. Um, I adore magic. Um, that original limited series is brilliant. It is so brilliant. And everything that she goes through right after that in New Mutants is just, you know, I fell in love with this character because of the trauma. And some of that has been brought back in some interesting restorative ways in in the present day, in 2023, as we record this. In some of her current, uh, her current incarnations, they're doing interesting stuff with her again. But at this point in continuity, Ilyana was dead. And that version of Viana that I loved had been dead for quite some time. So he is trying to do something interesting with the concept. And in order to make that happen, he took some very obvious liberties. And this doesn't read to me like somebody who di- who didn't do their homework. I feel like Soul Steel, that's not there. He, he made that up that it never come up before. And he knows that he knows he made it up, which means it's not just not doing his his homework. It's him saying, I want to tell a different story and I'm just going to do it. And everybody better be on board because I don't because I'm not I'm not going backwards. I don't like when people do that. I don't like retconning for the sake of retconning. That said, the last time I saw the soul stored and the last time I saw this this addressed was the Prometheum Exchange, which was a shit show. And as I've said, it's like quite possibly my least favorite comic ever it's certainly the, my least favorite part of the entire Excalibur run is I mean if you go back and listen to those episodes I did everything we could to not talk about it for three yeah. whole shows <laughs> like um because I hate it that much and this is not just not that this is something that I enjoy 
even though I disagree with the um with the mythos of it all. Yes, he ignored the lore that I love. If I but I can accept this as a different adaptation. I can accept this as a competent, well-told story. Like there's a mystery here because Kitty goes from just being contemplating contemplative and having an off day where she's missing her friends to the next time you see her, she's walking around being damn near evil and it's not poor writing it's a wow that's a choice what happened there even without me being a fan of him yet because this is much earlier on in ellis's career than this is before there's an authority right like this is before some of his greatest work even without that it felt like oh you've written something that i am interested in you have earned my attention please continue sir you know like that's where i was with this yeah i mean i'm not as deep into the lore of Ileana Rasputin as the two of you, but I was bothered <laughs> by that characterization in terms of, I always thought the sword as like a symbol of her struggle with her trauma and to reduce exactly, it to just exactly like that. nothing exactly happened. But like, so if it's just like, oh, the magic sword made her crazy. It's like, oh, well, that's really unfortunate. The magic sword. <laughs> the, the, so for, for without rehashing the entirety of the magic, limited series just so people can know what we're talking about the sword the soul sword is called the soul sword because it is literally three-fifths of her soul she sacrificed her like her literal essence her literal humanity her literal oneness her selfness in order to survive in limbo she sacrifices three-fifths of her soul to create that blade so it doesn't drive her mad many of Ilyana's problems are because you know is she even like she's more without a soul than she is with one what is what does three-fifths of a soul mean it doesn't matter what it means is this is a metaphor for this is um a this is a a young woman a you know a 16 year old girl who has grown up in an impossibly impossibly traumatic world to where she had to become a monster in order to survive in, in order to survive monsters yeah, yeah. so it's a story of trauma and that's what Ilyana Rasputin is and nah sword made her evil because they needed an evil sword that's what what Alice did here. <laughs> well yeah so. because that reversal of like it's such a great story for it to be a manifestation of her trauma that she uses as a weapon versus it to be an external force that's imposed upon her, which is what's implicit in the, oh, a sword drove her mad, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, that did really bother me. And it's bothering me more as we're talking about it. But we're gonna, we're, we'll have a chance to talk about it a little bit more in the next, in the next episode as well, because we get a uh, retconning of the explanation of how Kitty has the sword. And I think we're going to have feelings about that as well. But um, John, did you have any feelings about this before we move on to some other stuff? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have any strong feelings, because like I said, this was several years removed from the last time I had read, but I was a little confused by that beginning, because yeah, I understood that the soul sword was a manifestation of of Ilyana's own soul. I didn't think of, of, of soul steel as something that existed out there on its own, like adamantium or vibranium that you could just go find it right you go mine it from another dimension or something um so that was a little confusing but i thought i don't know maybe something happened in between that explained that and then the idea of the i i i didn't immediately get the sense that the soul the sword made her evil but it did say in the beginning right that 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 it loved killing right that or once it was bonded to a warrior who drew it often together uh they dealt pain and loved it and i thought i don't remember Ileana like loving it <laughs> i mean yeah, she did it no. occasionally but it, it didn't ever strike me as something she like relished as a as a warrior right it was more something she had to do as you said to survive so yeah i think th- there were a people. couple of moments that threw me there that i was just didn't remember from the comics but i didn't it i didn't, didn't pay a lot of people. attention to it <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. It, was, it, it didn't work. That was like part yeah. of the story. But I kind—I mean, I kind of got the point here that that he—he's evoking a a classic horror trope, which is the cursed object, right? Yeah, and yeah. and it, I guess it's needed for the the plot that, that he's trying to develop. He needed a cursed object, and hey, there's a sword in the story, so we'll we'll go with that. Yeah, it it threw me a little bit, but it didn't it didn't evoke a real strong reaction at the time. No, that's fair enough. He's using so uh, cursed object. He's using the origin basically of in from from Marvel. He's exactly treating it like the ebony blade, which was right, right. story, mm-hmm. and that's a it's a different object. He literally, I mean, I get it. He wanted to tell the story about a cursed object, which is a fine thing to do. And I think you're exactly right. It's like, oh, well, we've got this convenient one, so I'm just going to pretend that's the story because otherwise I have to like come up with a reasoning why I have a, a whole brand new cursed object, but it, the, the the soul sword in this book does not work like the soul sword ever had before. Its powers are different. <laughs> the curse is different. Like literally everything about it. It's just, it's just conveniently there, but there's other continuity things. I'm glad to know. I didn't miss something. So that's, nope. that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, you missed trying... Prometheum exchange, but it's bad. It's bad. And, and, and it's also out of character. So <laughs> I was I was talking with some of the comics XF people about the Soul Sword, you know, plot progression about the different places that it shows up, just to make sure I had it all clear. And uh, I was talking to Austin Gordon, previous guest, specifically about it because he's written about it for Gentleman of Leisure, and I was like very relieved that I was like I thought I was dumb, but no, the comics are dumb. <laughs> We didn't all have you know our we didn't all have our memories erased or something. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, we'll, we'll revisit that a little bit in the next uh, episode because Moira is going to give us an explanation of how Kitty got the soul sword, which does not make sense with what we'd previously been told. But anyway, let's talk about those atmospheric things that I keep saying that I want us to talk about. So I wanted to come to you, John, with a question about this being a reboot of sorts of the series. I do think it's a good jumping on issue because we're getting sort of an atmosphere set up. We're getting an introduction to the characters and sort of where they're at. And I wanted to ask you as a relative newcomer to this to this particular comic series, whether you felt like that was effective like did you felt feel like this setup with kitty having her outsider day and kind of reflecting on the characters and conversation with kurt did that give you sort of a good sense of this world yes and no i mean i think starting with with kitty help because obviously this is a character i knew and, and mm-hmm. was familiar with and you know her her inner dialogue there at the beginning is not all that different from some of her early you know uh, when she was 14 years old and joining the x-men and, yeah, and not really yeah. understanding her place and so that that felt familiar, and that was that was easy to kind of jump into. Um, and of course, I was familiar with some of these other characters, but I, I wasn't really I wasn't sure sort of where they were in their story arcs because this is several years after I last saw them. So you know, I I, I kind of understand Kitty and Kurt's relationship. I don't really know much about Brian and Megan or Moira and her husband, and we don't get a lot of of that here, other than than just those little glimpses that we see. So it was it was enough for me to to remember. The characters, it wasn't really enough for me to get a sense of where they were in yeah. terms of their storyline. And the same with, with the location. You know, I, I knew Mirror Island from earlier X-Men comics. I don't know that I ever had a real strong sense of it as a place or as a home. And back when I read a few of the early issues of Excalibur, I don't think they were there yet. So this still feels like a kind of a different place for me and a strange place. I mean, the only the only time we get a real sense of it as a home is when we get to Moira's bedroom, which we can hold off on if we want to talk about that later. But that's when I really started to think of it as a, as a personal space or a domestic space. But up until then, I was still sort of getting my bearings on where the characters were and trying to mm-hmm. figure out where in the, the larger 
history of those characters, this story kind of fit. And it did, it gave me enough, but, but not a lot of detail. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was just interested in some of the choices there because it does feel rebooty in the sense that Ellis is coming on. He's going to be the new regular writer for, oh, right up until the hundreds. So for quite a while. Um, And then the deliberate choices made there in terms of Kitty, in terms of her being on the hill overlooking Mm -hmm. Muir Island, right? I mean, she has, as you say, Mm -hmm. the classic point of view character. We're sort of looking through her eyes. We get the internal monologue of her reflecting on the characters and the relationships. And then we have Kurt coming and sort of their relationship. And we see how their bond is sort of at the heart of the team i found a lot of those choices very deliberate but yeah definitely we're not getting a whole full total context here although (laughs) some of the blame for that definitely has to land on the previous issues the britannic megan thing still confusing and dumb and pointless (laughs) there's no way to fix that even even drawing a nice little romantic picnic on the roof with them doesn't fix it (laughs) there's totally a way to fix it i mean can i can i give spoilers in like i don't know about a year ellis is just going to decide that he doesn't want to do it anymore so he's gonna stop that's that's how it's gonna conclude because britannic here is not behaving like britannic had been for the last you, you know all those plot threads about like oh i'm no longer human i am britannic now blah 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 like that's not gonna be resolved it doesn't come back it's over we're just done with that yeah all, all the weirdness of like why i mean it will come up but like all the absolute bizarreness of him that's over now there is no resolution there is not one coming how do we fix it we just pretend it never happened i forgot that this is how it goes too i really did i thought it was like it made more sense than it does upon rereading anyway sorry john no i was just gonna say how did he get his hair that high because last time i saw this character it it was not like that so at some point in between that hair just became you know a living thing the 90s extreme era happened and they decided to they decided to extreme up Brian and no one liked it so it just goes away eventually that's oh thank god that's the story there's nothing he gets lost in the time stream he comes back being i am britannic now i am no longer brian braddock i am no longer captain britain and everything about him had been like weird and you know hyper powerful and him brooding around and just smashing first there were no loving moments this is them acting like you know brian and megan had been acting three years ago but that's not how they were literally four issues ago yeah (laughs) did you have did you have any thoughts andrew about us getting back to kind of the domestic atmosphere of the series a little bit did that come across to you here uh yeah i think so i I think we're trying to play with the group dynamics we're having the characters looking at different characters thinking about their relationship to them Uh, i I think it all goes sort of um um, in parcel with what you were talking about the idea of a sort of soft reboot uh let's Mm -hmm. establish who these characters are in ellis's hands uh although obviously plotted by lovedell uh and try to push them into a direction that has some continuity to it but also explores new aspects of their character um and i think the transformation let's call it of kitty even though it's supernatural um is very much a way to um gesture towards a new direction yeah well it really reminded me of god what issue is it is it excalibur number three like the one where kitty and kurt are walking around the lighthouse as all the packages are being delivered and everything and sort of reflecting because 
yeah, this scene seems like a callback to that, especially because you have crates being delivered. It's like the same thing. They're sort of moving into their new home. And of course, Kitty and Kurt are at the center of it because they're the continuity from the old X-Book. And at this point, they're sort of the only continuity between the original Excalibur team and this current iteration of the team. Because although Brian and Megan are still there, they're not the same characters that they were. So I just I just found that a lot of those choices interestingly deliberate and for the most part effective for me. It was nice to see Kitty and Kurt acting as friends because we actually haven't seen that on page for a while best despite friends. i know best <laughs> friends now i don't okay <laughs> I, I don't quite buy that but still i appreciate the effort to well, i mean all of kitty's other best friends are dead to be fair they're all dead so. yeah she's the best remaining <laughs> I, she she well, could have no. just said, "You're you're my best remaining friend." Remaining yeah. friend. <laughs> she 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 also she also has Peter and Wolverine. Yeah. And but but Peter's off being evil as far as she knows right now. So she's got Wolverine. That's it. <laughs> I I have a question just for the group, I guess. <laughs> like okay. I don't even know how to phrase this. Andrew just said, you know, about like the deliberateness of it and everything. Do we feel that, or <laughs> I don't even know how I, 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 don't, I don't even know how to ask it. Well, it just felt it, it felt like very referencing both Sword is Drawn and those early issues of Excalibur yeah. to me, where Kitty again is the point of view character reflecting on this new space and this new team, and you know, in both of those, well, I mean, in Sword is Drawn too, you have you know her and Kurt out on the cliffside, you know, being buffeted by the wind and everything. So it did remind me of that. Although having cliff cliffside revelations is a staple of many genre stories and certainly a staple of x-men as well i just i don't know i just i i very much feel like this is this entire issue just feels like a you know as far as the soft reboot it feels like you're saying nothing mattered like i am aware of the previous history so andrew you even said plot it by labdell was it though because if you actually read the title it says it says with a story you know based on a story by scott labdell yeah and it says and i don't think it actually says that for the entire soul sword trilogy i don't remember because i i have to go back and check but i think maybe like either the next one or the third one it doesn't even have that like i don't feel like this was plotted by labdell because it's not going in the labdell if it was plotted by him it's a major course correction for him to take you know his last couple of issues out because this just go it flies in the face of so much that he'd been doing i i feel like maybe it was like hey we should do something with the soul sword and that was the story idea because <laughs> I don't know I don't know what else there possibly could be because nothing no one's acting even remotely in character of where Labdell had left them. This, I mean, it's only not a hard reset because there's no event, right? Like it's a soft yeah. reset, but literally only because nothing happened other than everyone's in a different character place now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the story is probably just getting the soul sword out of Kitty and to Amanda. And this is anyway, we're going to get there. Yeah. But, uh, but <laughs> yeah, anyway. I don't know how much he. Yeah, that, <laughs> it feels assuming, more like an editorial mandate. Yeah, I was going to say I was assuming that would be some sort of editorial mandate of some kind. But um, we will we will talk about that when we get to it. Um, John, mm-hmm. I want to come back to you to ask you about atmospheres of horror in the comic, sure. which obviously is something that you know very well you already spoke about the uncanniness of kitty's transformation Mm -hmm. a little bit and i would love to drill down on that a little bit more there's a number of scenes here that i thought were particularly interesting i think for me especially the one where she puts on the clothes and then cuts her shirt with the knife Mm -hmm. you know not with scissors with a knife right Mm -hmm. and then there's a really interesting panel that's not how you do it i (laughs) well i mean (laughs) it's how you do it if you're a bad i've never altered my own clothes so i wasn't entirely sure (laughs) i do alter a lot of clothes and i usually use scissors but 
but maybe with I should a, up my game. Bo- Bowie knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we got the scene of her, you know, looking in the mirror with the magical phallic sword extending from her midsection. <laughs> anyway, I would just love to hear your thoughts about the ways that this comic generates atmospheres of horror and if there were particular scenes that you'd want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it kind of goes back to the beginning. I feel like this this issue does what a lot of good horror movies do, which is that it opens with a sense of something that's missing, something wrong. Uh, In this case, the sense of of alienation that's coming from two two directions, right? It's emanating from two things or beings that are connected. The, the The sword itself, which feels lost and abandoned because it's a sentient object. At least that's what we're to understand, I think. Um, and then Kitty, who's having this, what she calls her outsider mood. And I think that's the thing that's drawing them together at this moment is this mutual sense of being abandoned, left behind, outside of things and and wanting to find that connection again. So I think it, it, we get a sense even in the beginning that, that though, that there's something kind of hostile or angry or dangerous about this mood, although Kitty doesn't mm-hmm. express that immediately. But she does, I mean, she doesn't just feel like an outsider from humanity because all the mutants feel that all the time. But in this moment, she feels like an outsider from her own teammates and her yeah. loved ones. And and it's it may be why she starts off with that uh, that sort of catty, pardon the pun, unkind thoughts about Kurt when he appears, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's like a rug yeah, or a CGI yeah. beastie. It's, it's the first sign of some weird hostility that she's expressing that that comes out even more so later against Moira and that's where we get to the bedroom which is what the thing that I really was was fascinated with because that's that's the one scene where we do start to feel like we're in somebody's home it's it's, it's her bedroom it's where all her, all her stuff is all the pieces of her history her husband all of that but we immediately see that this space is is being violated right and disrupted by Kitty who's coming in and just wrecking things and going through things and it made me think this is this is kind of another aspect of of possession right that the, the violation of someone's personal space and their inner life by this hostile other that has no regard for those things so I felt like Kitty is sort of evolving over the course of the story from these kind of petty little nasty comments to ignoring Moira to violating her space and then ultimately lashing out sort of violently and I thought all of that was sort of well done as kind of a horror trajectory right to take her from I feel like a lonely outsider to now I feel this hostility towards everybody around me and now I'm going to go destroy their stuff and attack them I mean it happens really quickly obviously uh you don't get a two-hour movie to build all of that but I thought it was well done in terms of the way it was sort of scripted I think one of you said earlier it felt like like there was a plot here like there was (laughs) like there was an actual (laughs) story being developed right um and that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I could see the crossover with the way horror plots are developed through those those stages. Yeah, I love that you brought up that it's teased early with Kitty's internal monologue, because I think that's a really good point. And I definitely think you can read that into it, because that is out of character for Kitty to have those thoughts about Kurt, whereas it wouldn't be out of character for, I mean, we're going to see in the next issue, <laughs> Grave Moss is going to have right. some very negative thoughts about Kurt. So right. that kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, because Kurt and, yeah. and Kitty have always been very affectionate towards mm-hmm. each other and very loving and playful. And so that already seemed a little odd. It didn't quite make sense unless unless you say, oh, this is just terrible writing until later you realize, oh, maybe it wasn't terrible writing. Maybe there was a point to that. 
Yeah, yeah. And I like the way it builds and the way that you're saying, right? Just that sense of, again, uncanniness and even the way that she's separate and then having the internal monologue. And then we see a disappearance of the internal monologue once she gets possessed, which is interesting. But it also works as, you know, <laughs> a supernatural version of teenage angst too, right? Yeah, and, sure. And for gender stuff as well, I would say there's quote unquote gender stuff <laughs> going on in this comic. <laughs> I mean, this was also the height of, this was also the Buffy era right yes. so like all teenage angst is supernatural horror at this point yeah i was thinking about some of kitty's style choices in terms of <laughs> things that we would that we would see in buffy later on but <laughs> yeah like the midriff and the combat boots mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the, the sword the sword <laughs> But yeah, man, that page, because she gets kind of, she gives herself a sexy kind of butch makeover. And then, yeah, just a, just sort of, sort of, I mean, by Kitty standards. But uh, but yeah, just that panel where she's got like the sword and is looking in the mirror. And then it's only reflected in the mirror, right? So it's almost like a fantasy self. And that's really, really interesting in terms of the phallic mm-hmm. imagery going on there. And, the well, and she had just of, made the... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. She, no, she no. had just made the bad joke about Moira being a, what did she say, a, a drag artist when she yeah, was going have, through her closet. I have a lot of complaints about, okay, so the Warren Ellis of this it. whole scene is okay. very much in play for me. <laughs> okay. And it, it, it's mostly in the details. Okay. So like, like one, she says at one point, Peter never knew what he was missing, mm, which implies yeah. the mm. sort of commodification of her body in a relationship mm. with uh, a, an adult where she's a mm-hmm. child that was a little messed up she nerd shames mm-hmm. moira at one point moira who is a nobel prize winner who both fucks and kills <laughs> um uh-huh. she is very much doing that thing where the good girl character is corrupted due to a narrative contrivance in order to perform bad girl art for the audience like there's mm-hmm. a lot of like I, I, I love everything we're saying about how this is building the uncanny because again that's all the ways that the story is working but with the, that whole Ellis thing hanging over our head, those elements in this scene were making me uncomfortable, even as I was appreciating how the tension was being built. Oh, no, it's going to get so much worse, Andrew, if you're already uncomfortable with <laughs> <know>. this here. <laughs> oh, no. I, I take your point, though. I take your point totally. I mean, I think for me, I was bothered by the tropiness of it in all the ways that you're saying, because it didn't feel like an extension of Kitty's character in a lot of ways. Because if you're going to do a possession thing, I think for me the ideal would be that the possession does reveal something about their inner character. And I, again, I think that's something that we'll end up talking about in next issue too. I, I'm pretty sure I put questions about that on the outline <laughs> to talk about the meaning of demonic possession stories in the context of character. But still, it's arguable that we get anything revealed about Kitty's character with all of those details that you highlighted. I mean, these aren't real feelings that she has about Moira or even Peter or Kurt necessarily. These are just inversions of how she feels. And that's shocking and exciting, I guess, if that's the point. But should it be about more than that? Well, I think one of the other pieces would be empowerment. Is she achieving Mm -hmm. empowerment through her vilification? And I don't Mm -hmm. think she is in this scene. There's the potential for it, but I don't think it's really being drawn out. I'm not sure it's supposed to. I think more so later it's intended here, but I think, I don't think we're going for empowerment here. I think we're going for, oh my God, is Kitty suddenly, I I mean, I I, I see your point, but I, I don't think even the defense of this would be to say that she's empowered in any way. I think it's supposed to be troubling more than anything. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm saying yeah. that these kind of um, possession scenes offer yeah. that potential. You go back to Stoker. Stoker is doing that with Lucy sure. Sterna and Mina. Sure. Um, this isn't in play. Exactly. This is not that. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not happening. 
Well, how did you feel about that, John, in terms of like comparing it to other kind of possession stories, particularly involving women? Sure. I, I mean, I think I may be being generous here over reading uh, my, my earlier reading of, of what Kitty was sort of expressing at the beginning, but I didn't necessarily read this as her, you know, trying to be edgy or sexy or any of the, the sort of outward things that we're seeing in that in that ending, but an expression of her trying to be, quote, normal, at least in the way she imagines normal must be for people who haven't lived <laughs> the strange, dangerous life that she's lived. Mm-hmm. It's her wanting to be outside her own outsiderness. But that, of course, means also being outside of her own moral and emotional center. So it's, it's like, uh... quote, normal kitty lashing out at mutant kitty and being really mean spirited about it and then turning that on her friends as well. So it's like the mean girl, normal girl, right, lashing out at all these freaky mutants that she's surrounded by, um, including herself, right? So, I mean, if if you read it as her sort of self-loathing, or at least that that early mood of her remembering her normal self, right, before she joined the X-Men, when she thought she was just a normal 14-year-old, how that girl would feel about this this place and these people. And And it's corrupted, and it's perverse, and it doesn't make sense given her whole history, but maybe that's the point. She's like trying to forget her whole history and go back to being something completely different from what she really is. So that's, I mean, that's just sort of reading into that sort of demonic possession aspect, which is usually about preying on your own inner fears and weaknesses, the things that you loathe about yourself. It, it preys on those things. So that's kind of how I was reading it. But again, it's, it's, it all happens so quickly and it's such a sudden dramatic change of character that it's kind of hard to get all of that from it other than, you know, me just trying to piece those, those scenes together in some way. Yeah. I really like that reading of it, John. And I, I did have a lot of mixed feelings about that Peter comment in that context, Mm -hmm. because on the one hand, that isn't unlike her behavior, you know, or like he cheats on her in secret wars and she feels so rejected and stuff. And you could see it going Mm -hmm. back to some of the juvenile energy of that. So I don't think it's a completely wild thing for her to say while she's demonically possessed. I mean, on the other hand, though, I can think of a more complex version of that where she'd be sort of speaking out against feeling manipulated or something in that Mm -hmm. relationship. Although I don't, that also makes the relationship even darker. So I don't even know if I would have found that more satisfying. I don't know. It felt like a bit of a gross joke, though. I guess I would just like to say that on a basic level. I agree. And like I said, I, I didn't know where that relationship had gone since the last time I saw it but I mean I can certainly see any ex being seen in somewhat hostile terms but yeah that seemed a little out of not just out of character but out of out of the context that I knew of of their relationship so uh, I'm glad again that I wasn't I wasn't just imagining that (laughs) yeah no no totally I mean do we want to talk a little bit about any other specific scenes that intrigued us like the other one is on the same page that I've been talking about with the sword coming out of Kitty's stomach but the second half of that page has a really interesting set of panels of Kitty moving through the space with like a set of mirrors and seeing different reflections Mm -hmm. did we want to talk about that a little bit did that scene interest you john at all mirrors are always interesting i think especially in in horror tropes because they you know i was about to say they reflect so many things but that was that would have been bad Um, (laughs) (laughs) but i mean we see her carrying the mirror earlier when she's ignoring moira and it's Mm -hmm. like well why is kitty carrying a mirror and then yeah we we see that starting to become clearer as she's you know trying on her new clothes. And then, yeah, I guess her holding the dagger was the first part of that that made me think, wait, this is strange. And that's also where she makes the Peter comment, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that was the the giveaway moment, right? We're starting to see, okay, this is not 
this is not right. She's not just acting moody or out of sort. She's actually starting to say and do things that are, are just not her. So yeah, I think the mirrors, it, it's hard to know where to start because there's so many things going on with mirrors in horror, uh, in, in horror stories. Their reflection, again, the reflecting on the self, which we saw her doing at the beginning. There are also portals or doorways into other dimensions, which we also know that both the sword and her whole history in limbo took place through these portals. They remind me of, you know, Ileana's, what are they called? The discs, Stepping the portal discs. discs. Stepping discs. Yeah. There we are. So yeah, all of that I think is being evoked. Now the sword in her stomach, I didn't know what to make of that. I, I mean, I've been listening to your comments on that because I really wasn't sure <laughs> where that was coming from. Again, having missed some history of the sword, I'm like, why, why is she seeing that and where is it coming from? So yeah, I didn't really know what to make of that. Yeah, I mean... Uh... We've talked about queer context of Kitty in the past. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. uh, one of the X-Men characters that some people have done trans readings of. I don't think that that's intentionally evoked here. I think it's supposed to be, you know, a phallic gendery thing, but not necessarily to have those larger implications. But um, yeah, just the use of mirrors on that whole page. I just was really impressed by the symbolism there because we have, you know, an infinity effect with Kitty facing a mirror with a mirror behind her. And as you said, it does look like a portal with sort of a shadowy figure haunting her in the background. And then we see the replication of her with, you know, without the sword in her stomach and with the sword in her stomach. And again, is that reflecting an ideal self is that reflecting a nightmare self what is that reflecting and i think the ambiguity there is really effective that's what makes it such a appealing gendery image right but then that bottom half where because we get a really cool comic effect there where like things are moving but not moving like the same space Mm -hmm. is broken up into panels and then kitty is moving across the space which is one of those things that like only comics can do and it's actually very complicated the way it works Mm -hmm. so i don't know andrew and mav did you yeah yeah go for it Polyptic. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. Well, and it's I her mean, in, in fragments too, right? Yes, Which yes. is what yeah. we see happening. Deconstruction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like moving and fragments being evoked there. I mean, well, I mean, I'll put it back to you, Andrew, since you named the term. I mean, why <laughs> use that effect there? I mean, we've highlighted a few things that might be going on. What do you think? Well, I think it represents them. I- it's a taking a part of the character, right? But it's also mm-hmm. because the the mirrors are different in that image. Yeah. And we see different types of Kitty. It's this mm-hmm. idea that she's not who she was, which is, of course, the point of reveal here uh, to the, the broader story. Um, reveal that Kitty is out of sorts. Um, but also that she is multiple different things operating simultaneously, which indicates the co-presence or possession. Um, but also offers the potential to indicate, uh, again, a, a more productive symbolic deconstruction of the character that through the actions of this story you're meant to be thinking about who kitty is as a character simply through how she's acting inconsistently here so the inconsistency reveals not just possession but plurality in my eyes so i think that's where some of the cool character symbolism is coming in yeah that was my favorite sequence from the comic for sure mm-hmm. and one of my favorite sequences mm-hmm. that we've had in excalibur for a long time even the box with her name on it you know, in the foreground mm-hmm. too. Split, so, right. Yeah. And yeah. then it's split yeah. by the panel. And then the idea of her sort of identity emerging from that box, right? Putting your identity in a box. And then the fact that the boots are in the foreground, you know, which is, I don't know, just makes me think of like, I mean, they're combat boots, right? So there's that element to it. But, you know, 
I don't know. It just makes me think of like the power of that, you know, like these boots are made for walking kind of thing. And like the emphasis <laughs> on her walking and even just like the moments of the walking that are chosen, you know, it is like that thing where you pick the most movement sort of, right? But it draws it out here. So it almost looks like she's shuffling. It's just really well done. It's a really good sequence. For me, it's, I mean, the symbolism and it's very obvious, but I think that Dodson and Karani are doing as much as they can to evoke the the Ilyana ness of this yeah, because yeah. since Ilyana see the armor. I, Kitty doesn't yeah well the armor and also the mirrors are stepping stones right Ilyana mm-hmm. has this happen to her as she passes through limbo all the time right um in in the old days right like she there's a lot of when am i is this you know when you're seeing me in actually in the original magic series and in several things since then including recent issues of new minutes there's a lot of recent at time of recording um there's always a lot a, a big question with her of when am i and what does it mean to be a character who is timeless and out of control at the same time right so you're seeing the reflections in that panel that you like so or that series of panels that you like the at the bottom of different states of Ilyana's eldritch Irma, Irma covering kitty which is what used to happen to Ilyana. like um, she never had control over that power particularly at this stage um, it was always sort of just from her perspective random but usually connected to trauma she manifested it originally as a sort of i want to be protected the way my brother made me feel was always the metaphor um you know peter has this this um this armor so so i'm going to have it too because once you're armored nothing can touch you but kitty already has that power so now you're sort of using you're using mirrors you're using a reflection to sort of you know replicate the gift of your best friend whose brother was also your boyfriend and you know you <laughs> so and many she layers. might also be your girlfriend <laughs> like i mean so like for all the for all the and again i've talked about this before i love the kitty colossus relationship because of how dirty it is and because of how messed up it gets once you add iliana to it and like so it's not so much that i don't think it's problematic it's that I think the problematicness of it makes Kitty especially, but also Ilyana and Peter more interesting because they're so broken as people. So that's what I like about it. Like, I understand why it's bad, <laughs> but, but I mean, but I think it's um, when done correctly, I think it is interestingly toxic. And I oh, think yeah. this sort of sings to that in um, in some interesting ways, particularly since at this point, neither Ilyana nor Piotr are around. So this is literally just Kitty sort of visually exploring all of that trauma by herself with both of them gone. Right. And of course, she has just evoked invoked Peter's yeah, name as she's having this moment. Right, right, right. right. So, so it's all there in her own consciousness in some level. I would also, well, I'd, I'd also extend it to the next time you see her when she's in Moira's room stealing um, Joe's jacket, which that I don't care about as much. You get Phoebe's jacket, but also, <laughs> you know, call back, but also um, just the doing the unforgivable bad girl sin of smoking a cigarette, which mm-hmm. is amazing, you know, and also <laughs> as, a for, as a former smoker, I just want to let you no one enjoys a cigarette that is yeah yeah (laughs) oh my god like unless you're possessed by a demon yeah (laughs) so foul 
I mean, I'm not saying that there weren't points. I mean, like maybe if you're an addict, you might be like, I'll take what I can get. But like just just the entire everything about that was sort of great. And I, you know, I I love that they're just like, no, she's a bad girl now, you know, bare midriff and she smokes cigarettes. Maybe she even has the sex, you know, like, 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 like but I don't want to say anything about drugs. That would be too much. you know. So oh, like, yeah. I, I, mean, they, I, they I called the cigarette the evil weed. And I was like, this is yeah. supposed to be pot, right? <laughs> right. God. yeah it's very camp that page i appreciated that <laughs> all right um we're gonna revisit a bunch of this stuff certainly we'll be we will be revisiting the context of of kitty and and <laughs> Peter in some future issues i think we cited that as one of the things we're eager to talk about when he shows up uh when we did our holiday special um but anyway let's go around and do some final thoughts and spotlight something briefly from the letters page so i'll come to you last john but i'll come to you first andrew things from this issue that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance um maybe just another kind of like like minor point of of writing development Mm -hmm. um the concept of the winding way to me Ah, is really interesting yeah yeah it's interesting when it's given parameters and internal cohesion when it's just a MacGuffin that resolves whatever problem you need it to resolve it gets very boring very quickly so i I kind of like a little bit of the development here uh in terms of how ellis is giving that uh, a shape that i think lovedell never really had a good feel for yeah, I like that too. There's a lot of potential for that. And I mean, you know, I think Johnny was talking about this, that it can be whatever you want it to be, but there's a structure being set up here to make that possible. Because it's like, oh, well, Margali has these periods of power and then loss of power because of the nature of the winding way, which is like a circular road to progression of power. So it's like, it sets you up with a lot of possibilities within there. Like she can show up anywhere at any time and be at any point on the winding way and we can explain it by saying that's just how the winding way works which i'm not criticizing that i think that that's a clever way to handle it and it does make it intriguing i mean there's a context set up here that you're like oh that's interesting what is that i think it's more interesting than shrill (laughs) let me put it that way anyway mav final thoughts from you uh i was also going to use that exact same segment because uh, (laughs) i was going to say so you know Margulie's a white lady again instead of a green lady. Mm-hmm. It is weird because Amanda's acting like, oh my God, mother, I've not seen you in so long. And it's like, yeah, no, yeah. no. In in comic book time, you saw her last week, like literally a <laughs> you know, a few issues ago. She was just green then. And I <laughs> I mean, and it's not like Amanda doesn't know that, right? Like, um, I like that Ellis is doing something, and I think that there's an intentional note in the script that says, and then she meets Margaret as a beggar, and she is a white lady again, not green. Like, I think that that is, that is important, because I do think, for exactly the reasons Andrew just said, I think that... um trying to do something interesting with the winding way and saying you know depending on where you are in your weird personal time stream of the winding way your power may have fluctuated you know i like the idea that she could be on a different part of the path than amanda is because amanda maybe also follows the winding way or maybe doesn't right like i like that i don't know that ellis will ever achieve the cohesion with it that he wants to for a better look at this like uh, there's um there's a famous panel in alan moore's promethea which shows them walking along an infinity symbol maybe we can tweet that out i love that conceptually and i think that's what he's going for here yeah and i i don't think it lands but i kudos for taking a swing you know (laughs) you know like foul tip i guess i don't know (laughs) like i i i think it i think it's trying to do something which is 
better than just being like, I don't know, anyway, moving on, which is the way Lepdal yeah. would have handled it. Or just like dropping Margali in to be an evil mm -hmm. MacGuffin, which, you know, mm -hmm. happening happening again in comics currently. I love it. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> my final thought was going to be just to highlight the amazing note from Jubilee, which was just, we've talked so much <laughs> about the writing on this book. And really this letter might be my favorite part i'm just gonna read it kitty since you're stuck in the frozen north where decent boutiques are kind of rare i got feathers the zillionaire to take me out shopping for you this stuff is kind of your style kind of sensible i already called the taste police jupes <laughs> most in character thing in the book <laughs> loved it so good. If, so good. but I if that doesn't everywhere. send you on a into a homicidal rage what yeah. would I mean, <laughs> to be fair John, final thoughts to, to close out our discussion of this one. Anything that you wanted to highlight that we didn't get a chance? Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I guess I, I can't really end without saying one more thing about uh, Nightcrawler. The panel where he's teleporting near the end and he, oh, he yeah. goes through the adjacent dimension. I don't know if this is the first time that they've tried to offer like a a physics explanation for his his ability that you know the the laws of physics will not allow matter to cease to exist for a moment first of all i'm not entirely sure that like modern quantum physics would agree with that Ooh, but yeah <laughs> but but it is an interesting sort of scene and, and panel where he's you know traveling through this this alternate dimension and it makes sense i think both for the character and for this this particular storyline and for his nature as this kind of supernatural ish being right but i just thought i thought that 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 one panel was really interesting both in the way it kind of you know frames him and, and gives us this kind of slow motion teleport i don't know that i've i've really seen the slow motion teleport for him before if I did, I wasn't paying attention to it because it was so long ago. But I really like that scene. And I like that moment. And I like that they're kind of trying to offer some different or interesting explanation for how his teleportation works. But if y'all know more about that in, in sort of the larger context, I'm curious to hear about it. Oh, yeah. Official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition number nine. <laughs> Great. And also, um, which, which issue of Excalibur is it? Excalibur 65? Mm -hmm. 60? Mm -hmm. Three, I forget. There was like a Alan Davis issue where they do a scientific investigation of his powers, and the whole issue is basically just scientists watching Nightcrawler do things and talking about how awesome he is. It's great. <laughs> it's great. I just that sounds it great. <laughs> so yeah, we had seen that before, but I mean, my question about it is why is Grave Moss specifically hanging out in that dimension? Right. But isn't he? I, isn't he fine. supposed to be possessing someone at the moment? It's yeah, true. It's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it just was, waiting i know it was suitably horrific and i did enjoy it as well <laughs> and the way he possesses him is kind of gross yeah. too he just kind oh, of yeah. pours yeah. himself oh, yeah. into kurt's mouth oh yeah <laughs> good horror image <laughs> all right um i'm gonna do a sword strokes letters page thing just because we hadn't had it for a while i don't think i'm gonna do an actual letter because they're long and basically both of the letters are complaining about the new direction and then editorials just like wait and see <laughs> But I did want to highlight something that we actually mentioned in the podcast, which is that there's a big note occupying a full quarter of the of the letters page about the new paper stock that they're offering for Excalibur and a couple of other titles at the 195 cover price. But then there's this other thing where they're still going to be offering the old paper for like a buck fifty two weeks later, and that kind of made my head spin in terms of how complicated that would be for printing and distribution. And I was like, well, Marvel was going to go bankrupt in a few years. <laughs> 
this seems like a bad idea <laughs> wow but uh yeah. i don't know that just was real weird to me i was like you're gonna print two different versions of the comic book and sell them at different times so you're having to ship twice this doesn't sound like i'm not in the biz but that doesn't sound like a good idea to me but what i don't know what do i know i don't remember it ever actually happening Maybe it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> like it might. I, I don't. Maybe it did. And somebody can remember. But I don't remember it coming to fruition. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't. And it was just sort of a sop to fans being like, oh, it won't be one ninety five. There'll be a cheaper one. And then the cheaper one never actually materialized. I would not be surprised. <laughs> anyway. Son of a stop. Give me the sword. Please, give it to me. No! The only placement is the bottom of this lake! So we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, John, thank you so dearly for joining us. Uh, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you and the kinds of stuff that you work on. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what work or writing or any other projects or causes or anything else that you would like to highlight? Um, I did that sentence weird, but basically, plug your stuff, John. What do you get up to? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I sent you a few links that you're welcome to share. Um, but if you're listening and you do want to find me, um, you can connect with me on Mastodon. I have a brand new uh, site on there. It's at Passable Ghost at hcommons.social. You can also maybe look up the Digital Cultural Studies Cooperative, um, or if that's too hard to, <laughs> to remember how to type, uh, just type in Realizing Resistance 3 and you can learn about nice. some of our uh, Star Wars stuff um, as well as some of the other events and things that we've, we've sponsored and are going to be doing in the future. And then as some of you on here already know, um, my school UNT will be hosting next summer's Comic Studies Society Conference here in Denton as well as online. We'll be doing a virtual component. So if you're a comic scholar or creator, go to the CSS site and you can get more details, including the for papers for that conference you certainly can and i am on the committee doing hybrid stuff for that conference so we yeah. are working on trying to make the hybrid stuff fun and exciting and equitable and the in-person experience is going to be great as well so yeah i will it's going to be fun it will be and i'm sorry i won't get to see you there in person but i will certainly be there virtually but yeah anyway thank you great. so much again john Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Next, things get demony-er in Excalibur number 84, Dark Adapted Eye, in which Kurt's not quite himself and lots of people do lots of things with swords. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we did for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday special, which you can find via the Box Popcast YouTube channel or our website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via the website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another magical conversation thank you john for helping us cut to the heart of it thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of Thoughtform music for a truly epic theme song play us out back from the break